Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 4 through 6. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we lift up our souls to you this morning. It's in you that we place our trust. We pray that you would empower us through the work of your Holy Spirit to know your ways and that you would lead us in truth. God, we give you thanks for your mercies and for your steadfast love and pray that you would be glorified this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that God's law is an expression of his character. And I think that's nowhere more evident than when we look at his specific laws in the Ten Commandments. As most of you know, we've been slowly looking at God's law with kind of that express purpose in mind, that we might better understand his character. Last time I was here, we looked at the first commandment and the reality that we're called to have no other gods before the face of our God, that we're to renounce false gods and worship the true God alone. Today we'll be looking at the second commandment and the reality that there's a reality that in a lot of ways the second commandment is similar to the first in that we're, it doesn't allow for worship of false gods, that we're to worship the true and living God. However, the second commandment is not merely just a restating of the first. It's both an encouragement and an admonition, not just in regards to our worship, but to guard our minds and our outward actions. So the second commandment deals specifically with the creating of images in the likeness of God. And while this was an extremely important precept to the original hearers, it's, this law has never been more relevant than it is to us today. We're bombarded on a daily basis with images designed to elicit our worship. And not just in the secular world, but in the church itself. Now, one of the things I, I love about this commandment is that it's, it's more than just a command. And that the Ten Commandments are kind of puzzling in that way. Some of them are plain and simple commands. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. Other ones, like this one, they give a little bit more. They, they give a promise or an explanation or maybe even both that go along with the command. And that's helpful for me because I'm a, I'm a bit of a why guy. 
Kind of like a young child when someone makes a statement, I often ask, maybe not out loud, but in my head, why? And sometimes that's appropriate, but it's not always an appropriate question. I was thinking like if a, you know, a soldier is charging into battle, it's not a good time to ask the question, why? You know, Alfred Lord Tennyson in his famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, said in regards to a soldier that there's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. And in, in the same way as a general rule, when God speaks as Christians were to listen, we're, we're not to question him and ask why. The, the Apostle Paul anticipated this uh, kind of why question in Romans chapter 9. Uh, when he asked the, the Roman church, he says, uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the answer he gives in verse 20 through 21, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? The point I'm trying to make is that we don't always get the luxury of asking why. Sometimes we're just to obey God's commands. And I understand there's a bit of a nuance here because it's not all about the question, but it's about the heart behind the question. And if we look in scripture, there are instances of godly men asking the question, why? Right? David questioned God at times. Job certainly did. Uh, if you read the book of Habakkuk, there's a lot of questioning, the question, why, in there. But generally speaking, our default should be to trust and not question God. But in our, our text today, God in his, in his providential dealings with his people preempts us. So we don't have to ask the question why. He gives us the reason why. And so that's part of what we're going to look at today. I want to spend some time dealing with the commandment itself. And then look at the reasons why that God gives to obey the commandment. So if you're taking notes or if you're wanting to kind of stay organized... We have two major points. The first is going to be looking at the second commandment. And the second is going to be looking at the reasons to obey the second commandment. And within each of those points, we'll have a few sub points. So our, our first point, um, looking at the commandment itself, we have two sub points. The first would be a prohibition against idols. And the second would be a prohibition against likenesses. So starting there, um, the prohibition, looking at the prohibition against idols, the text says in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now the word idol specifically does not cover all images, but rather it's concerned with the creation of a physical representation of God or of a God. The word idol here is sometimes translated carved image. And it would typically be made of wood or stone or of a precious metal that was molded. And this was a common practice in the surrounding pagan cultures of the Israelites. Quite often, both Egyptians and the Canaanites would carve bowls to represent the power of a god. And we see these type of false idols pop up throughout Scripture. The, the, these pagan nations believed that carved images gave physical place for the essence of deities to dwell. And by creating an idol for the essence of that deity, to dwell, they now had special access to that God. 
to that deity. And, it, and in some cases, they believed that they could actually harness the power of that deity or even control that deity. And we see examples of this in Scripture. Uh, I was thinking as, as early as Genesis, we see uh, Rachel, when she leaves, leaves Laban, she steals his household idols. Probably the most famous example would be in Daniel chapter 3 with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember there, uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes this golden idol for the people to worship. And uh, every time music is played, they're supposed to bow down and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told that if they don't worship, they'll be thrown into the furnace. And they, they basically tell Nebuchadnezzar, our God will protect us from the furnace. But then they say in, in uh, Daniel 3.18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cannot worship this false god because it's an action that's expressly prohibited by God. But the interesting thing here is that worshiping pagan idols is already a breach of the first commandment. I'm not convinced that the, the second commandment is necessary to prevent these actions. So when the second commandment prohibits the making of carved images, it's going further than idols to pagan gods. It's prohibiting the making of a carved image in the likeness of Yahweh himself. And we see God's people make this very mistake multiple times in Scripture. I was thinking about the story of Micah in Judges 17. If you remember, he steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother, and his mother utters a, a curse on whoever it was that stole the silver. And Micah, probably out of guilt, comes clean and says that he was the one that stole the silver. And it says in Judges 17.3 that he then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make graven images and, molten, and a molten image. This was not a, an attempt, at least initially, to create a false god. She wasn't looking to create a new god to worship. Rather, she's saying that she dedicated the silver to the Lord for her son to make a graven image. And so it's not a matter of worshiping a false god. It's a matter of worshiping the true god in the wrong way. Our God is not like a pagan God and setting him up as an idol is, is to deny him of his spiritual nature. And by making him into an idol and denying his spiritual nature, we are in essence turning the living God into another false pagan God. John uh, Mackey said this, he said, by denying the spiritual nature of God, the idol degrades God and misleads the worshiper into placing the divine on the same level as the, as the world of ordinary experience. Far being a help to worship, the idol sets up an insurmountable barrier to the refinement of human perception of what is spiritual. To create an idol, even one that is supposed to represent God himself, is to degrade God and bring him down to the level of false pagan idols. And no audience needed to hear that more than the wandering Israelites. For we see it 13 chapters after they receive these commands from God. Moses is 
been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and they get tired of waiting for him. And so they ask Aaron to make a false god for them or to make a god for them. And Aaron took gold rings and fashioned the famous golden calf. But he, he didn't fashion what he thought was a false god. Aaron makes it clear that the calf is a representation of Yahweh. He says in Exodus 32, 5, or it says in Exodus 32, 5, Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow we shall feast to Yahweh. Aaron saw his creation of the golden calf as a form of worshiping of the true God. And this is reiterated in the prophet Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 9.18 it says, Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you out uh, up from Egypt. So Nehemiah uses the singular form God. And it's clear that the Israelites associate the calf with the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. But the text says that they committed great blasphemies. And the, the point here is that it's, it's not that they, they breached the first commandment by putting another God before God. The great blasphemy that Israel commits is that they made an idol out of our God. They broke the second commandment by making an idol to represent the true and living God. But it's not just idols that are prohibited. And this is that second subpoint in the first point. If we look at the commands, the, the first was the prohibition against idols, but the second is the prohibition against likenesses. The text reads, You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now, this is perhaps where the commandment becomes more personal for us today. For while we're not above making carved idols, images of God are everywhere in our culture. And I think it's important to note here that it's not a prohibition on images in general. And sometimes the text can get misread that way. We have the freedom to create images. When it says images of things in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters under the earth, it's talking about images of God. And we know that because God commands the creation of heavenly images. We see this in Exodus 26.1 when God commands his people to create curtains of linen and he tells them to inlay it with cherubim. Or in regards to the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat was the, the lid of the Ark, and they, they were commanded to put a cherubim on each side of the mercy seat. So the images that God prohibits are images designed to represent or subvert God himself. Which is why verse 5 in our text reads that you shall not worship them or serve them. This is something that you would do to a God, worship it or serve it. God prohibits us from making likenesses of him. Now, while God prohibits us from making likenesses of him, that, that does not mean that likenesses of God don't exist. God is not bound by the second commandment. Um, it's a command for you and for me. God is free to create images that he chooses, and he has chosen to create you and me in his image. It says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Only God can create something in his image. Now we have to be careful here because, well, we cannot deny that we were made in the image of God. We're not, we weren't created for the same reason that idols are created. Nor, we weren't created as objects to subvert or replace God. Rather, we were created in the image of God to bring glory to God. Christ, on the other hand, is different. Christ was not created as we know, but he was the physical representation, is the physical representation of the living God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 teaches us that Christ is the image of God. As well as we look at Colossians 1.15 that says that he is the image of the invisible God. And so we mentioned that the, I mentioned that the Ark of the Covenant uh, was to be known as the mercy seat. And God commanded his people to make cherubim on each side of it. But the, the seat itself was left unadorned. There was no idol to be put there. But the glory of the invisible God dwelt above the mercy seat. The seat was left vacant until that time when Jesus Christ, the one in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in bodily form, took his rightful place on the seat. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if Christ is the image of God, then we have to grapple with the reality that the second commandment does not just prohibit images of God the Father, but it prohibits images of Christ. And this is a, a bit less controversial topic today than it has been in the past. Less controversial because most people, even in the reform world, have accepted images of Christ as normative. And we don't see image, uh, images of Christ as a violation of the second commandment. And for some people, it's for exegetical reasons. But unfortunately, I believe that for the most part, these aren't hermeneutical differences, but it has to do with just a low view of God's law. In the Puritan era, for instance, it, you're hard-pressed to find too many Puritans that would be comfortable with images of Christ. And images of Christ were common in those days in the Catholic Church, just like they are today. Um, and, and some of that had crept into the Church of England and there are, there are famous stories of Thomas Fairfax and later Oliver Cromwell sending soldiers uh, through the countryside and the soldiers would go into the churches and they would destroy the images on the, on the, in the churches because they saw them as blasphemous. And they, they actually left them there. Uh, I don't know why, presumably for the people of the church to see that the that their allegiance is to the law of God and not to the traditions of the church. But the fact that our culture is so quick to accept images of Christ shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. We live in a culture that's obsessed with visual stimulus. We have tons of social media, Facebook, X, YouTube, TikTok. I'm not on social media, so I don't know all the ones, but they're, they're mainstays of our culture. And we live in an era of smartphones and television and, and movies and digital photography. We're inundated with images. We have familiar sayings like, a picture is worth a thousand words. And these aren't bad things. I love 
good photographs and good movies. But all this visual stimulus has, has an effect. It desensitizes us. They've, they've created us in us a desire to always be gratified, to always have a visual representation of the thing we want to see. We have no sense of mystery. But the Bible's clear that we have to be okay with some mystery. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There's a time coming when we will see our Savior face to face. But that time has not yet come. For us, now we are told to walk by faith and not by sight. Paul talks about a fu the future in this kind of way in Romans 8, 24 through 25. He says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he, has already, for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. The Apostle Peter encourages saints with sim a similar sentiment in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly would rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Like I said, there will come a time when we see our Savior face to face. God will reveal himself in that way to us. But as the, as the image of the invisible God, we're not to create images or likenesses of him. Now, there are respected theologians who disagree with this stance. They argue that because Jesus took on flesh and blood, because he walked the earth, it's okay to make depictions of him because he had physical form. The, but the problem that I see with this line of reasoning is that there are no actual depictions of Christ. Therefore, any depiction we have of Christ is an act of pure fiction. Or worse yet, it's a depiction of someone else altogether which is the case if we have an actor who plays Christ on TV or in a movie. And this is dangerous for, for us because we have bent minds and we, we love to fill the gaps. And before we know it, we're worshiping images of Christ that we've seen that are not images of Christ at all, but are false gods. But even if, if you have the ability to, to manage to not think of these images when you worship their very existence is still a breach of the second commandment because they're designed to give us an image of Christ but not the true Christ. Daniel Hyde had helpful words in helping us to understand why images of Christ is a breach of the second commandment, whether we worship or not. He says that those, those who say images are forbidden but only for worship imply that we can fulfill the command of God by not having images in worship while we have them in books or at home on our walls. The logical conclusion is that we can have idols, but just not in worship. We can take the Lord's name in vain all week, but not on Sunday. To say that the second commandment was written for the context of worship only, and therefore we can make pictures of Christ, the incarnate God, outside of worship, is like saying we can dishonor, murder, commit adultery, steal, and lust after that which belongs to our unbelieving neighbor because we are only forbidden to do these things amidst the covenant community. 
The second commandment is a prohibition against the making of idols or any likeness of God. This is a commandment that we need to meditate on in our lives. It's not just an issue relegated to times past. It's not just an issue that we read about in scripture. This is a present reality that we have become desensitized to and we must evaluate in our own lives. And this is never more prevalent than, it, than at Christmas time. And each person has to be convinced by their conscience, but we have images of Christ all over during Christmas time. And we need to evaluate those kind of images. But our second point today is why we should keep the second commandment. And, and within this point, I have five subpoints, and they're going to go pretty quick, so don't, don't fret. But there are five um, reasons. So five reasons God gives us to obey the second commandment. The first reason is that he's a jealous God. And this is found in verse five. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he gives the commandment and then there's this conjunction for. And this is God giving us the why that we talked about earlier, the why behind the command. The first reason that he's a jealous God. The, the word jealous is difficult for most of us because it's not cast in a particularly good light throughout scripture. In fact, Paul warns about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. And he goes on from there. But the point is that Paul calls jealousy a deed of the flesh. He doesn't paint it in a good light. So how could God offer jealousy as a reason for obeying the second commandment? And the answer is fairly simple. When we think of jealousy, we think in terms of human passions. However, as James G. Murphy pointed out, anger, jealousy, hatred, and revenge are ascribed to God not as passions, but as the feelings of a holy being in regard to that which is evil. In the, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translate the word jealous as zealous. The, the point that's trying to be brought out is what one author called God's passionate loyalty. We are to obey the second commandment because God is passionately loyal to us and our obedience is for our good and for his glory. He is a jealous God. The second reason he gives for obeying the second commandment is that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation. God is pointing out there that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. We must face the consequences of our sin. But this warning goes further than that. I don't think it simply means that the children will pay for the sins of their parents. Excuse me. Although there is truth in that statement, I think that there's a sense in which the children will inherit a pattern of sin from their fathers. So this is a warning to both fathers and to children to be aware of how our sin affects others. Be aware that as children that our parents are not perfect. Be aware of 
their, their shortcomings. And as parents, be aware that our sin has lasting effects on our children and our grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. We see an example of this in the, in the Babylonian exile in 2 Kings. If you remember Manasseh, he reigned for 55 years. And it says in 2 Kings that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In 2 Kings 21, 11 through 12 says that because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And sure enough, Several generations after Manasseh dies, 2 Kings 24, 3 says, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. Now it's important to, to point out here that Judah was living in sin. They, they inherited a pattern of sinful behavior and, and just as much as they were paying for the sin of Manasseh, they were paying for their own sin. Each of us will have to account for our own sin. But we must consider the example that we set for our children and understand that the idolatrous ways that we live today can last for generations. And it's only by the grace of Christ that these kind of patterns can be broken. So God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children on the third and fourth generation. And then the text says, of those who hate me. And that's the third reason that we obey the second, second commandment is because those who partake in idolatry hate God. As James Murphy said, to have or to make another God is to hate the true God. No husband can say that they love their wife, yet wish everything about her was different. No child can say that they love their father and yet have no desire to obey him. In the same way, God calls us to obedience. And if we actively say that we love him, but desire to create a different God altogether, then we can safely say that we don't love him at all, we hate him. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God makes the opposite point clear in, in this commandment. If you keep, if you don't keep this commandment, you show that you hate him. The fourth reason to obey the second commandment is that he shows loving kindness to thousands. And it's here that we see a contrast from our second reason. There, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. But here, God's mercy is shown and that he shows loving kindness. But it's not just that he shows loving kindness. He shows it to thousands. And I believe, based on the studying that I've done, thousands here refers to generations. And so the contrast is even greater. For he visits the iniquities of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, but he shows loving kindness to thousands of generations. It's here that Thomas Watson said, the Lord has treasures of mercy in store and therefore is said to be abundant in loving kindness and rich in mercy. 
The vial of God's wrath only drips for now, but the fountain of his mercy runs. The sun is not as full of light as God is of love. And just as the, so just as the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children, so too is God's love. Just as a, a life of idolatry has an effect on our, our children, so too does a life of faithfulness. Now our, our children still must have a faith of their own. But what a rich inheritance to have faithful parents. And what a merciful God that he shows loving kindness to a thousand generations. And our fifth and final reason to obey the second commandment is that it's a, a display of our love for God. This again is contrasting an earlier point, the point three that, that to disobey is to hate God. Verse six reads, showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's no accident that keeping God's commandments is attached to those who love him. First John 5, 3 reads, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so it is here that those who love God desire to keep his commandments. They go hand in hand, and they are not a burden. Richard Baxter said that love is the commander, commander of the soul. And therefore, God knows that if he has our hearts, he has all. For all the rest are, are his command. For it is, as it were, the nature of the will, which is the commanding faculty. And its object is the ultimate end, which is the commanding object. Love sets the mind on thinking, the tongue on speaking, the hand on working, the feet on going, and every faculty obeys its command. It's out of love that our minds are set on thinking, that our tongues are set on speaking, that our hands are set on working. We obey the second commandment because we love God. So those are the five reasons that, that the, the text gives us to obey the second commandment. So we have the the command itself, and then five reasons to obey. Samuel Rutherford said, Oh, that I could give up with this clay idol, this masked, painted, over-gilded dirt that Adam's sons adore. We make an idol of our will, as many lusts in us, as many gods. We are all God-makers. That's the reality, is that we are all God-makers. And so, as it says in Deuteronomy 4.15, watch yourself carefully. Watch yourself carefully. Examine yourself. Are you a maker of idols? Are you a God maker? Or are you a worshiper of the true God and obeying him out of love? So take heed of God's command. Do not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is none like you. But God, our, our hearts are fickle. And we, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to empower us to put away all idols, 
to put away all likenesses of the living God. We ask for hearts that love you and desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. We give you thanks this day for your son, Jesus Christ, who is able to save forever those who draw near to you through him. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.